Join us on October 28th at 5 p.m. Pacific Time for the Commonwealth Club Gala as we celebrate outstanding community advocates who, through incredible acts of service and long-standing leadership in their communities, embody the theme of Stand By Me. Text CLUB2022 to the number 41444 so you can register and donate today. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, as you know, some six months ago, uh, on February 24th, Russia launched an invasion into the sovereign territory of Ukraine. Since then, Poland has become a critical component of the Western effort to defend Ukraine and to deter Russia. The Polish-Ukrainian border is a hub of activity with refugees from Ukraine flowing back and forth and military equipment as well. Significantly, Poland has accepted some 6 million refugees during this war. Poland has housed 2 million of those refugees without opening a single refugee camp. So you can understand why we all agree that we are honored to welcome His Excellency Marek Magriowski, Ambassador Extraordinary and Plenipotentiary of the Republican Poland to the United States to discuss Poland's views and concerns regarding the war in Ukraine. Ambassador Magriowski was appointed to his post in Washington, D.C. in November 2021 after previously having served as Poland's ambassador to Israel, where he did a magnificent job, and as Poland's undersecretary of state for economic cooperation with the American and Asians. So we are truly delighted and honored to have this wonderfully capable man representing his country, Poland. Ambassador. Thank you very much, Abraham. Ladies and gentlemen, Distinguished guests, dear friends, uh, it's always a pleasure to meet with uh, a bunch of such distinguished uh, guests. Thank you very much for this kind invitation to the Commonwealth Club and also to this marvelous city of San Francisco. As you already know, my previous posting was in Israel. I spent uh, three wonderful years there with my beloved wife. And whenever we travel around... um, to Florida, for instance, or to California, and we up and arrival, up and landing at the airport, and we see the palm trees. My wife says, finally, I feel like at home. And I say, what do you mean? You are from Poland, not from Israel. Still, we miss Israel, and I believe that after my four-year term here in America, we'll miss America greatly. More than 60 years ago, Nikita Khrushchev, Uh, a name some of you may be familiar with, the former Secretary General of the Soviet Communist Party. He was a frequent visitor to America, quite paradoxically. And in uh, October 1960, he delivered his remarks at the headquarters of the United Nations in New York City. And he said, quote-unquote, history is on our side. 
we will bury you. Of course, you realize whom he was addressing in that speech. He was addressing the main enemy, Guavni Prativnik in Russian, the United States. History is on our side. We will bury you. Now, when you hear President Putin and you wade through his speeches, how reminiscent his words are of those remarks made by Nikita Khrushchev 62 years ago in New York. History is on our side. We will bury you. Make no mistake. History is not on Russia's side today, and they will not bury us. They will not bury us. They will not bury Poland, and they will not bury Ukraine. In spite of the fact that this is the malign intent of Mr. Putin and all his acolytes in Russia to bury Ukraine, to erase Ukraine, to annihilate not only the Ukrainian culture, the language, the roots, the whole nation. In July last year, he wrote and published a lengthy essay uh, about his vision of the Russo-Ukrainian bond. And again, his main message was that such a bond did not exist. Why? Because there is no Ukrainian nation. Now, one of the, uh, of the most important achievements of Mr. Putin in recent months was strengthening the Ukrainian national identity. Now, we are entering the, the eighth month of the war, and I believe that nobody in America, in Europe, in Poland, and even in Russia, nobody has any doubts whatsoever that the Ukrainian nation does exist, that the Ukrainian culture does exist, the language, the heritage. This is what Putin has achieved. We have to give credit to him for that particular accomplishment. Putin uh, decided to carry out that invasion. He uh, wants to erase Ukraine from the map of Europe because he's got, he's got an obsession, uh, 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 deeply seared in his mindset. He knows very well that Ukraine is the, uh, does pose a threat to his rule in Russia because what he fears most is prosperous Ukraine, liberal and democratic Ukraine, Ukraine which adheres to European values. I just want to remind you that in 2014, at the time of the so-called Maidan revolution, it was Ukraine's accession uh, to the European hypothetical and potential accession to the European Union, which jangled Putin's nerves. He was so irritated that the Ukrainians wanted to um, get closer to the European Union in all respects. And that's why, for example, when I talk to my American interlocutors, I always try to persuade them that for Ukraine, it's much more important today to join the European Union than to join NATO. 
because Putin fears uh, European Ukraine more than Ukraine being a NATO member state. Uh, Putin, uh, for today's Russia, one of the most important pillars of Putin's rule is uh, all the, the whole alliance with all those post-Soviet republics in Central Asia, in the Russian underbelly. Many of them are corrupt, and corruption is an inherent element in Putin's rule, not only in Russia, but also in the Russian sphere of influence. The less corrupt these countries are, the more European, the more democratic, the more liberal in terms of the economic development, uh, the weaker Putin's rule is. Poland, uh, as you know, has reacted uh, quickly and uh, in a very steadfast manner to what happened in Ukraine. It was an incredible effort, a remarkable outpouring of solidarity and sympathy towards our Ukrainian neighbors. Uh, our president, Mr. Duda, has, uh, has been saying repeatedly that we don't treat them as refugees. We call them guests. They are guests in our country. Uh, so far, there's been uh, roughly 6 million people who have crossed the border with Poland. Uh, according to recent estimates, about uh, 1.5 million decided to stay in our country. Some of them re-emigrated to other countries in Europe. Many of them have already returned to Ukraine. But if you add those 1.5 million Ukrainian refugees or guests in Poland to those approximately 1.5 million Ukrainian migrants who had already lived and worked in Poland before the war, uh, turns out that the Polish population has increased by about 3 million. 3 million Ukrainian refugees who are integrating into the Polish society smoothly, impeccably, uh, in an exemplary manner, which is also a lesson for other European nations to follow the Polish model of integration, of migration policy. A few months ago, just after the beginning of the war, uh, the, uh, the Polish parliament passed a law which uh, essentially facilitated the integration of Ukrainian refugees into the Polish labor market. Uh, they can now apply for Polish ID, which does not make them automatically Polish citizens. But with that ID, for instance, they can set up their own businesses, they can send their children to Polish schools, they are eligible for uh, free healthcare, and they get a lot of other benefits. Uh, well, like Polish citizens. We have uh, incorporated more than 200,000 Ukrainian children into the Polish schooling system. 400,000 Ukrainian refugees uh, have received working permits, so they work legally in Poland. Um, there, has been, there hasn't been a single racial incident 
in Poland. Nobody has ever assaulted anybody because someone spoke Ukrainian or in Krakow or in Warsaw or in Poznan. No ethnic tensions. Um, that's why I think that uh, this is a, a momentous development in our bilateral history. As I said, an, um, an extraordinary outburst of solidarity. Solidarity is of paramount importance for us, not only as an empty term. For us, solidarity means much more than that, also because of our historical experiences. Now, it's not only about humanitarian assistance, it's also about military assistance. Just recently, we delivered, for example, more than 240 main battle tanks to Ukraine, uh, self-propelled howitzers, which are doing an amazing job in the East right now, clobbering the Russian aggressors. We are ready to deliver even more. And I've, I believe this is our common obligation to help Ukraine arm itself and to help the Ukrainian armed forces in this uh, struggle, in this uh, fight against the Russian invaders, which will be probably protracted. This war, unfortunately, will not end shortly. Uh, this is our common obligation. In our case, it's also a Christian obligation because we believe that this is a, a, a morality tale for all of us. I had a dis uh, various discussions about uh, this particular war and uh, we were asking ourselves, for example, among Uh, EU ambassadors in, in, in the United States. I, I have um, a vivid memory of one such discussion, whether this is a clash of civilizations. Uh, Samuel Huntington, as you know, uh, published a book about a clash of civilizations. He referred to the clash between uh, Christianity and Islam. Now, I believe that... Uh, Uh, what is going on now in Ukraine is also a clash of cultures, especially when you think about that um, blatant disregard for human life and for human dignity on the part of the Russian aggressor. Uh, you probably remember all those reports about crematoriums being brought to the front lines uh, by the Russian army just in order to burn the bodies of the fallen Russian soldiers how different it is from our approach. We save every single human life. We rescue every single soldier left behind enemy lines. We evacuate them and we evacuate their bodies. Can we talk about a clash of civilizations? I don't know. But perhaps we should also think about the perception of Russia, which uh, 
have been embedded in the European mentality for so many years. Many European politicians still think that Russia is an inherently European country because of the Russian culture, because of the Russian literature, music, ballet, uh, and so on and so forth. I fully agree with that. I do love the Russian language, the Russian culture, and the Russian music. Uh, but do we have the same roots? Do we have the same history? Just to remind you that uh, Russians have lived under the communist yoke for more than a hundred years, unlike us. The Bolshevik Revolution took place in 1917, and then the Soviet Union disintegrated in 1991. But it did not cease to exist. It did cease to exist geographically and politically. But I can still see vestiges of Soviet mentality in contemporary Russia, unfortunately. Unfortunately. Is this a clash of civilizations? I think this is our crucial question we have to not only ask ourselves, but also bear in mind. Because if this is a clash of civilizations, if this is a clash of cultures, it means that the Ukrainians are fighting not only for their own freedom, not only for their own sovereignty, they are also fighting for ours. They're also defending the free world, the West, uh, from that murderous wave, from that uh, unspeakable aggression, and all those crimes committed by Russian troops, now on Ukrainian soil, but in a few years' time, maybe also in Polish soil, and in the Baltics, maybe in Finland. If we don't stop Putin now, he will come back with vengeance. Uh, our Ukrainian friends uh, note, rightly, that the war began not on February the 24th. It began in 2014, with the annexation of Crimea and the incursion of Russian forces into Donetsk and Luhansk. So the Ukrainians have been waging this war for more than eight years. Uh, another important issue, and uh, I have to go back to my point about uh, Europe's approach and Europe's attitude towards uh, Russia. Uh, Europe has always been pretty much naive about Russia's intentions, uh, not only in terms of uh, foreign policy, but also, for example, uh, in the field of energy security. And this is a, a topic I have been de dealing with also here in America for many months. And I've been saying to my American friends, look, Poland has always been prescient. We've known all along that Putin would one day weaponize energy. And that's why we were trying to brace ourselves for that eventuality, for that potential uh, hypothetical scenario. 
So we, for example, we inaugurated our first LNG terminal on the Baltic coast five years ago. A month ago, we opened the so-called Baltic pipe, which now transferred transfers gas from the uh, Norwegian continental shelf via Denmark to the Polish stretch of the Baltic coast. We are buying now gas from American companies, from Qatar, and from some other sources as well. Uh, we have decided not to renew the long-term contract with Gazprom. From now on, we are entirely independent of imports of Russian gas. Unlike, unlike some other countries in Europe, which I'm not going to name as a diplomat. But, you know, it's, it's also a question of, um, uh, I hope winter will not be as harsh as some predict. But um, it's, um, uh, there is a, a German word, which has also somehow uh, uh, been used also in America, in English, and in some other European languages, Schadenfreude. We don't feel Schadenfreude when we look at what is going on now in Germany and all those German politicians, it's really hilarious, all those German politicians who are so worried that uh, German citizens will have to lower the temperatures in their swimming pools during the upcoming winter by one degree Celsius. It's also the question of resilience. We are not as resilient as Russians. And that's why the final outcome of that confrontation, not only the war in Ukraine, but of that confrontation between the free world and Russia is not so clear. To what extent can we be resilient in the face of, of this uh, energy crisis, for example? Um, I do believe that uh, uh, there is a, um, an ongoing debate in America and also in other parts of the world, to what extent America should be focused on uh, on the eastern flank, on Ukraine, on this particular region. And I have been asking this question uh, to my uh, American partners and, and uh, colleagues, uh, if there will be political will to keep uh, not only the pressure on Russia, but also to keep financing and uh, assisting Ukraine's war effort. And uh, uh, many people will tell me, rest assured that we are not going to relent. We are going to keep arming Ukraine. We are going to keep transferring our weapons to Ukraine. Uh, we are ready to do that as well. But we have to convince uh, our American friends that... Uh, this is an, uh, an immediate threat. And of course, I'm, I'm talking about this in the context of uh, America's uh, uh, approach to the Indo-Pacific. Uh, because uh, many analysts are now claiming that America is not capable of waging two wars at the same time. Um, but it is my priority and my governments and my countries to persuade uh, our American allies, that uh, what is going on now in Eastern Europe, this is an immediate threat. We don't. This is a race against time. 
That's why we have to strengthen the eastern flank. And uh, Poland is also arming itself. We know very well, we are absolutely um, convinced that the Article 5 of the Washington Treaty is sacrosanct. That, uh, as President Biden has also said on several occasions, uh, America is ready to defend every inch of NATO territory. Uh, so are we. we Poland has, has been perceived until recently as net recipient of security. Now we are transitioning to the role of net provider. And that's why we are arming ourselves um, at an accelerated pace. That's why we are net we are delivering our tanks to Ukraine, but we are also buying 250 Abrams tanks from uh, the United States. We are buying um, weaponry from South Korea. So probably in a in a few years' time, we will become the most uh, militarized country in that part of uh, of Europe. Uh, and I wish that other countries, other NATO members, uh, chose the same way. Because we have to be prepared for any eventuality. Uh, it's very risky to navigate Putin's mind today. But, uh, and I've also used this argument uh, many a time, uh, Poland could be the next item on his menu. I hope it won't happen. I, I still believe that he won't dare uh, carry out a special military operation against one of uh, NATO member states. But uh, we have to be vigilant and we have to stave off this threat uh, preemptively. And that's why we count on our American friends, because we do believe that America uh, has always been is and will remain our most steadfast ally. Thank you very much. Well, Mr. Ambassador, thank you for those wonderful remarks. As grisly as some of the thoughts you had struck us, we understand completely. It was not my intention. No, I understand. But we understand how you feel and, and, and the consequences of, of failure in Ukraine. Are very real for your... your yeah, very real, and this war is very real for us. And I'll tell you an anecdote, uh, a little bit grisly as well. Uh, when uh, there was an attack, a missile strike against one of the, of the Ukrainian bases, on the Ukrainian side of the border, but very near the Polish border, which is about, I believe, 10 miles, uh, Polish citizens who live on the Polish side of the border not only heard the blast... But the windows in their houses were rattling. Mm. So it was the, the, the physical experience, of course, not as, uh, as ominous and uh, as bloody as uh, what we uh, witnessed in, in, in uh, Bucha or Irpen mm. and in other cities and villages in Ukraine. But uh, we, we feel that war also physically to a certain extent. I'm not surprised. And you used a word, solidarity, that was particularly important to me in my experience with, with George Shultz and Ronald Reagan in the late 80s when we watched a great pope and Lech Walesa lead your country to freedom. So I think it's a, 
particularly. We always add Margaret Thatcher to that group. Yeah, we get. I don't mind that at all. But I think the notion that we are in a in a period of solidarity with Ukraine is exactly the right idea. Thank you, thank you for that. Tell me, Mr. Ambassador, what what could the United States do other than what you've said about staying true to the cause? What could we do to help Poland and to help Ukraine? Uh, first of all, let me express my gratitude for American leadership in this conflict. Without American leadership, I, I can't imagine that uh, we would be cooperating so strictly and so tightly. Uh, when I mentioned Putin's achievements, it's not only about strengthening the Ukrainian national identity, but he, he has also reinvigorated NATO. He has reinforced uh, the European Union. He has enlarged NATO by himself, yes, by the way, sure. with Sweden and Finland about to join this organization. Again, it's, it's, we have to give him the credit. But um, uh, the American leadership is of paramount importance, particularly in these uh, uh, difficult times. Uh, if you ask me what America should be doing right now and in the future, I think America is doing the right thing right now, um, approving uh, subsequent packages of military assistance to Ukraine. And uh, the question is, of course, uh, whether we fulfill all the needs in terms of, of our military help, military aid of our Ukrainian uh, brothers. Uh, the question is, to what extent should we allow, for example, the Ukrainian armed forces to use uh, long-range mm -hmm. missile launchers, uh, attacking Russian territory. The position of the Polish government has always been very clear. We don't uh, think that it would be too escalatory to win this war. And I, uh, I had a very uh, a friendly and a very insightful chat with one of uh, American uh, admirals just yesterday, and he was asking me uh, an open question. How successful can President Zelensky be in this war to become a little bit too successful? And there is a, that uh, you know, persistent question about uh, what Putin would do if he finally felt uh, encircled, if he feels that uh, like a caged animal, a cornered rat, uh, of course, we have we have heard so many nuclear threats coming out of the Kremlin. You're preempting my second question. Yeah, and uh, we're all thinking. Oh, this is a, this is a serious. This is, of course, a serious dilemma. But again, I, I I believe, and this is not only my personal opinion, but I think that uh, uh, the the Polish government has has also expressed it at view on multiple occasions. Uh, we have to help Ukraine win this war at any cost. That's breathtaking in the context of nuclear weapons. And we, all of us, feel exactly as you do on the merits, I'm sure. But nonetheless, how real is the fear, do you think, that nuclear weapons, tactical nuclear weapons, 
some of which are far less uh, damaging, uh, include they they involve far less power than even Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So the the fear is that Putin will feel that he can use one twentieth, let's say, of the power of the force with a nuclear device and get away with it. Uh, he has already got away with uh, many nasty things he has done in the past. Uh, I am maybe not terribly optimistic, but slightly optimistic about uh, uh, what he will, what he would choose to do mm-hmm. uh, if uh, he feels that he is losing this war. Uh, I don't think that uh, it would be of great political and military benefit for him to use even low-yield tactical nuclear weapons on the battleground in in Ukraine. Uh, also, because you, you, if you use, we have never used nuclear. I mean, humankind, the mankind has never used an, uh, a low-yield nuclear warhead. So we know what the 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 effects, what the impact of uh, these two bombings in Japan uh, was in 1945. But we don't know what would be the impact of a nuclear uh, strike with a low-yield warhead, especially on the battlefield, not dropping a bomb on a on a uh, on an urban center, for example, on a city in Ukraine. But on the front line, uh, and I do believe that uh, uh, Putin is making this calculus right now, mm-hmm. and this calculus is not very positive for him. So, as I said, I'm optimistic that he will he will not dare use the nuclear bomb. Also, because you know he's losing allies right now. He's losing allies, uh, and I'm talking about some of those post-Soviet republics like. Kazakhstan, Armenia, and many others, if he does choose to use a nuclear bomb, he will probably lose also China. He will also lose India. Now it's, um, it's a very tricky game for these countries because they are very, I mean, their position is very blurry in terms of uh, criticizing or endorsing Putin's war in, uh, in Ukraine. Uh, in uh, in case of uh, a nuclear conflagration, I think it would be politically suicidal for Putin. Um, well, by the way, yes, I hope your reliance on his capacity to reason is well stated. As I said, I am not a Putinologist. Yeah, and uh, it's it's really it's really an extremely hard task to decipher. His uh, his mind and his intentions. He he reminds me of the the un untutored hero in Notes from the Underground, who found a way to act against his interests in every possible situation. <laughs> Absolutely, very Russian. <laughs> well, sir, tell us how you think this war might end. And next question, please. <laughs> We're we're blessed here with the presence of the Consul General of, of Ukraine, and 
I would like to have your views on that, and I'd like to have his as well. Okay, I'm keeping my fingers crossed, of course, for the Ukrainian army to, to ultimately defeat and crush the Russian aggressor. It's, um, it's very interesting to say how Putin was manipulating his own public opinion over the last couple of months. And um, um, he, uh, until recently, he could have sold defeat in Ukraine as victory mm -hmm. to his own domestic audience. Because uh, an overwhelming majority of Russians have so far lived in an information bubble. So he could have said, for example, okay, we have uh, defended the citizens, uh, the, the Russian-speaking population of Donetsk and Luhansk from, from those, you know, from the oppressive, from the, from the, from the Nazis in Kiev. And this is the narrative he was trying to peddle to his own uh, domestic audience. Now, everybody in Russia knows that this is not a special military operation, that this is a war. And now every 19-year-old lad in Russia knows that he can be sent mm -hmm. to the front line overnight. So this has uh, changed uh, his political standing quite dramatically, because now he cannot sell this uh, uh, possible defeat in Ukraine as victory. It's no longer the case. Uh, so it has its downsides and, and upsides, but I, I believe that this is, uh, this is something he has to be uh, coping with right now. And you think that would force the war to an end that's really an end? Uh, he will have to definitive yeah. conclusion. He will have to find a way to. Uh, I, I'm. There has been some proposals on the part of some European politicians to offer Putin an off ramp, and I've uh, I, I've seen some uh, memes on Twitter and on other social platforms uh, arguing that the only off ramp for Putin would be the Kerch Bridge, which connects Russia proper with Crimea, living Crimea and living Ukraine forever. This is the off-ramp we should offer uh, President Putin. Uh, I don't know how this war will end. Uh, the only thing I'm sure of is that Russia will not be um, identical uh, after the war. Because all these uh, uh, wars of aggression that Russia has waged over centuries in the past have always led to turbulences and to social upheaval in Russia, in Tsarist Russia, in Bolshevik Russia, and now I believe it will happen also in Putin's Russia. Thank you. Mr. Consul General, we would greatly appreciate your reactions. Thank you. Yeah, so first of all, if you allow me, I would like to take huge thanks to Ambassador Magyarovsky for his excellent remarks and such a clear, clear understanding and uh, delivering the uh, about the whole situation between Ukraine and Russia. And I would like to again choose this opportunity to thank Poland for the enormous help, enormous support, and all Ukrainians appreciate that very, very much. Just on a human level, it's a huge help to our refugees who are called guests, and uh, also like our even... 
our languages are very similar. We, we used to say that our Ukrainian language is closer to Polish than it is to Russian, in fact. And uh, sure, of course, sure. we, the alliance between Ukraine and Poland probably is now the strongest in Europe. And if we combine two our armies, it definitely would be the most powerful army in Europe. And uh, that's true. And actually, as Ambassador mentioned, uh, Poland is the biggest supplier of tanks, battle tanks to Ukraine uh, among all the countries in the world. And um, uh, or probably after Russia, because we managed to capture oh. even more tanks from Russia. That's true. But... Um, so how how the war how the war should end probably so ukraine has been recently quite successful in counter offenses you know in the kharkiv region in the south and even now in donetsk region and lugansk which russia or and putin already announced their all territory right so and uh, russia now announced this general mobilization trying to mobilize 300,000 uh, people probably close to 1 million what they try to do but this will not make a huge change because those people don't know what they're fighting for what they are being sent to fight for and ukrainians of course are fighting for freedom in our country and in the whole europe and that is a huge difference and now Putin tries to intimidate Ukraine, tries to intimidate the Europe and the whole world with nuke and with some other threats. And Ukrainians are not afraid. And what our president is always saying, we want the world also not to be afraid of that. We all take it very seriously, of course, but we should not be afraid. And as President Zelensky again says that, that NATO should, nat should not wait for Putin to make a move. We should, NATO should make a preventive, pre preventive measure, pressure, preventive pressure. Uh, so for him to show what the consequences would be if he ever tries to do it. And the more we do together now to cooperate and to make put more pressure on Putin, the more safer the winter would be in Europe. And as again, as President Zelensky said, there is no negotiation right now possible for us with Putin. We're waiting for a new president of Russia to arrive. And um, after that, after that, the after the war will be over. What's the end of the war for us? Of course, the liberation of all our territory. Again, as Ambassador Magrovsky said, including Crimea. So, uh, Russian forces should be withdrawn from Ukraine. We don't know. We don't want anything else. We don't want to be. Okay, I just will not say that. But true destruction of Russia. So, just liberation of our territory. That's the end of the war. And now it seems really realistic in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. So let, let me end this. We don't have time for all the questions. I've read about you and I've heard you speak on Twitter, of course. <laughs> but you have a... It's not a very credible... Story. You have a grasp of history, sir. What is it that accounts for what the Consul General touched upon and which you explicitly talked about, what is it that led us to fail to react in 2014 to the invasion of, and conquering of Crimea? As I said a few minutes ago, uh, there are so many European politicians who still believe that uh, Russia may one day become uh, as European as France, as liberal as uh, Poland, as uh, democratic as the United States as uh, civilized as the free world. There was that hope, which was not entirely, you know, um, wrong. Because I do believe that uh, Russia will one day become more democratic and more prosperous 
and uh, friendlier towards its neighbors. Uh, Russia, for example, has always been one of the most important trading partners for Poland. So losing Russia is not good for Poland. Losing Russia as an, um, an important player on the international stage. Russia will not vanish. Russia will always be there, even if it, uh, by a fluke of history, disintegrates like the Soviet Union did at the beginning of the 90s, of the past century. Uh, but Russia and Russians will always be our neighbors. And of course, it's the, the priority of every nation and every country in the world, also Ukraine, to have a friendly neighbor. We are not going, we, we, we don't want a confrontation with Russia. We don't want to wage a war against Russia, let alone the Russians. We want Russia to change. And uh, Ukraine wants to uh, settle this dispute, but not with that president. So that means that even the Ukrainians believe that Russia can change. Uh, now we, you know, we share the common enemy right now because we've also had a very painful history of our bilateral relationship with, with Russia. Our, uh, you know, the, the memory is still vivid of all the uh, horrendous atrocities committed by, uh, by communists, by Russian troops on Polish soil uh, for hundreds of years. Uh, but I believe that uh, what we are facing right now is a, a real and uh, existential threat not only to Ukraine, not only to Poland, to whole Europe, but also to the United States. Because if we uh, don't curb Putin's near-imperial ambitions, this will lead us to a complete, uh, uh, to a, a very perilous shift in the entire security architecture in the world. If you look, for example, at the, uh, the relationship at this particular bond between Russia and China, if we lose Ukraine, we will also lose Taiwan. Because China is, what China is doing now is monitoring very closely and very meticulously what is going on in Ukraine right now, drawing lessons. China thinks about its political standing on the international arena in, uh, in the prospect of a uh, hundred years. Unlike us, we are thinking about, um, many European and American politicians think about the next press conference and not at a, uh, about the next century. Uh, so it's not only about Again, it's not only about uh, Kiev and Lviv, it's also about Warsaw, but it's also about Paris and Washington and Beijing. So this is absolutely vital for us to defend Ukraine today and to protect the free world. I, Mr. Ambassador, I can't think of a better note to end on. Our time is up, as I believe. 
And the lesson of Poland, that is, it took us, the Western world, several invasions before we realized they were... It's enough. It's enough. <laughs> when Germany invaded Poland, it took, it took us all that time to come to, to declare war. And even then, the United States was years behind. So uh, we have a lesson here from the two countries that are standing up for the Western world, really, against uh, this tremendous challenge that we all face. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.